Welcome to another episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to some of the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, I'm speaking with Nelson Sio, a joint founder along with his brother John of Fermat Capital. Fermat Capital is a US-based in Connecticut that I visited in my recent trip to the US. Uh, fund manager that manages $5.8 billion for mainly pension funds and other institutional investors. It specializes in investing in catastrophe bonds or insurance-linked securities, an area of the market that can provide returns that are largely uncorrelated to other traditional asset classes, which can make them very attractive in investors' portfolios. Prior to founding Fermat in 2001, both Nelson and his brother John had distinguished careers on Wall Street with firms like UBS following graduation from MIT. I found Nelson to be very intelligent, thoughtful and insightful in explaining this area that many investors aren't familiar to. I hope that you enjoy this podcast. I know I got a lot out of it. Please remember to send feedback, subscribe. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Nelson. Welcome to Inside the Road. All right. Thank you. Well, this is my first um, international podcast, so it's exciting to be here for myself. Perhaps you could start off by giving us a little bit of background to yourself uh, and for Matt. Of course. Uh, so, uh, Fairway Capital Management was started in 2001 uh, by my brother John and myself, and uh, uh, we were aiming to be, you know, a... Uh, um, third-party investment manager for primarily institutional investors at the time was our target uh, within the um, insurance link security space and um, uh, you know even more specifically we were uh, planning to focus on catastrophe bonds and at the time the the whole ILS space insurance link securities and catastrophe bond market was was really quite new uh, my brother John had uh, uh, helped start up the market when he was at Lehman Brothers uh, for the cap bond market. Um, and he had started that in, I think, 1998. Uh, my background had been always from a, uh, uh, working, starting off out of college with a company called O'Connor & Associates, which is a derivatives market making firm. And uh, I was in foreign exchange derivatives and precious metals uh, for, for maybe 10 years or so. Um, O'Connor had gotten bought out by Swiss Bank Corporation, which merged with UBS, and I stayed through those uh, entities as well. Um, John had had uh, also started off at O'Connor and Associates, and uh, uh, we both went to school at MIT together and uh, um, started working together at O'Connor. And um, eventually, though, he joined uh, a place called uh, DLJ, and uh, um, and then from there moved to. Uh, Harvard Management Company, but John had developed a reputation for being able to basically price any option or, uh, or figure out the, the, the most difficult quantitative uh, problems. And um, I think Lehman Brothers knew him from, from the mortgage markets and uh, um, brought him in to help sort of, for lack of a better word, demystify the cap bond market, the ILS market. And uh, um, the goal was for him to always you know, uh, join Lehman Brothers, but then hop out and start his own management company uh, after uh, after working at Lehman Brothers for a bit and, and helping them to uh, figure out the marketplace. And that's what happened. 
Uh, so in 2001, uh, he convinced me to join him to start up the company. And uh, um, we've been running uh, the, the company outside of Westport, uh, from Westport, Connecticut, which is about an hour outside of the New York City. And we've been here for uh, since then. Uh, enjoying the, uh, the, the market growth, watching it grow into a, a, you know, much more of a real market. When we started the cap on, when we started uh, in 2001, the cap on market was about just over a billion and a half in, in size. Uh, and maybe like six issuances. So uh, I remember people were uh, at the beginning were like, "Look, you're you're really smart. You have great systems and all like that. But your market is just really tiny." Um, and it was, but we 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 had confidence that it was going to grow. And and today it's you know it's I think it's like thirty something billion dollars uh, for just the cap bonds alone. The broader ILS market is is ninety billion dollars or so, and. Um, uh, you know, size of the issuances are, are quite large. The breadth of the penetration in the market is quite large, uh, and uh, um, you know our philosophy throughout this time hasn't really changed much. Uh, we have a we have a high uh, concentration in catastrophe bonds. Uh, a lot of that is it it plays well into our trading backgrounds because uh, we like to utilize the liquidity of cap bonds. Uh, but we do um, uh, do a lot in the less liquid space as well. A lot of people will call that collateralized reinsurance. Uh, cap bonds, uh, as, as you know, but maybe some of your, your audience may not know, uh, you, are, you might think of it as, as high catastrophic reinsurance uh, in bond form, though. Uh, and uh, so the uh, investors in a cap bond take a risk of a very large uh, catastrophes, mainly natural catastrophes like hurricanes and earthquakes. Uh, there, there are some other types of risks out in there in the marketplace as well, non-natural catastrophe and, and life and things like that, um, mortality. Um, but uh, the investors basically take a, uh, um, a risk of a large event happening um, and uh, uh, if no event happens, you get a risk premium, uh, which is typically in the form of a coupon, uh, and so that's you know in a bond form that's how they that's how they are. Uh, the market is uh, um, it's it's been growing a lot. We think that uh, it still has a lot of room to grow. Uh, the biggest growth areas probably for the cat bond market uh, and the ILS market in general are really. Uh, what we call over the filling in the disaster gap and uh, the disaster gap is something where uh, it's really just the uh, the uninsured um, losses that happen when a catastrophe happens uh, which are which are quite large so in the US when a uh, big disaster happens about 50% of it tends to be insured uh, for the losses 50% uninsured and, and the US is one of the uh, um, is a country where the insurance penetration is one of the highest in the world. Uh, so you have a lot of other uh, countries in the world that have uh, a lot of exposure to natural catastrophes, but where the government is, tends to be the backstop for it or where uh, just individuals just don't insure. Uh, and uh, you know that is probably the biggest growth area. The, uh, the market has come to a point where I think pricing makes sense for a lot of governments to offload risk. Uh, and they're starting to do that. And uh, we're really seeing that happen a lot over the last few years. 
a lot of uh, governmental entities or quasi-governmental entities coming to the marketplace uh, to hedge out their natural catastrophe risk. And for those insurance-linked securities and those catastrophe bonds, which is an alarming name for many of my clients when they hear that, yes. um, but it's actually quite a con conservative investment, you're talking about natural disasters typically, and, and would they be defined as West Coast America, you know, the San Andreas Fault and Earthquake sort of zone, and Florida and the hurricane market, and then maybe Japan with earthquake as well? Is that typically where most of those catastrophes occur? Yes, I mean, you know, it, it tends to be around the uh, populated areas, uh, and uh, for some reason, populations tend to form around highly uh, catastrophe prone areas or, <laughs> or uh, uh, not highly but you know where where you can have one that's that's fairly severe you know Tokyo being a good example yeah. uh, you know, the West Coast America West Coast America is all in the US everybody's moving towards the coastlines and on the West Coast you have earthquake risk and on the East Coast you have hurricane risk uh, so certainly yeah Florida is very big but actually the whole north the whole eastern seaboard of the US uh, has quite a lot of exposure to hurricanes uh, they just don't happen as frequently up in the north, uh, but the exposure is quite high. Uh, but yes, uh, uh, certainly, and then you know, Japan for the earthquakes and typhoons, uh, Europe for its winter storms as well, uh, and um, you know, even Australia, New Zealand for earthquakes and typhoons as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, globally, uh, it, it tends to be earthquakes and, and hurricane typhoons so that are the biggest uh, I still haven't gotten to the bottom of the difference between a cyclone, um, typhoon tends to be in Hong Kong and so forth, and a tornado seems to be land, but I'm sure one of my listeners will correct me at some point. Um, so what type of returns are typically extracted for investors um, you know, with exposure to the type of insurance-linked catastrophe bonds that, that FMAT offers? Yeah, so uh, for, the, for the bond-type funds, uh, the returns tend to be in sort of a uh, cash plus um, like a, a 375 to 475 basis points. Um, and, uh, okay, so you're talking about three and a quarter, four percent more than the cash rate? Yes, yes. Uh, so cash rates definitely vary across the world uh, these days. Um, the, uh, the instruments are uh, themselves, most of them are US dollar denominated. Uh, and they pay a coupon uh, over a, um, a treasury return, typically. Mm -hmm. um, or they're starting to use IBRD notes as well for collateral, which is AAA uh, quality. And uh, um, those as well, a lot of times those are fixed off of LIBOR. But basically, they're, they're, they're floating interest rate in instruments. Uh, they tend to be about uh, uh, three to five years of maturity at issuance. Uh, and um, uh, reasonably liquid on the buy, uh, you know, if you want to sell them. Uh, they tend to be less liquid if you want to buy them because a lot of the investors tend to be buy and hold uh, and uh, uh, things like that. So, And I think one of the attractive uh, pieces from, from this investment type of security is its lack of correlation with other traditional assets. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that for us? Yes, uh, so you know it's it's um, it's not a difficult thing to, to convince or to demonstrate to investors that uh, uh, big financial shocks to the system don't cause earthquakes or hurricanes, and so uh, 
you know, that's, that's an easy one to do. Um, people often wonder about the correlation the other way, like does a massive earthquake or hurricane, is that going to cause correlation to their, port, their you know, traditional portfolio? And, and typically most of the evidence in the past, and we haven't had a lot of super major catastrophes, uh, but they tend to be uh, uh, longer term stimulative to a region. Uh, so if a region, you know, the infrastructure uh, gets, spending, yeah, infrastructure spending and the like. So it may short term have some effect, but it usually tends to rebound. Um, but um, uh, but it's, it's definitely, you know, uh, the, the financial crisis wouldn't, a financial crisis wouldn't cause a, uh, um, a hurricane or an earthquake, and that's uncontroversial. And so I think the, the market really did get a lot of notice after the whole Lehman Brothers global financial crisis. Uh, because the ILS market performed extremely well and as advertised, so to speak, given that it was relatively uncorrelated. And so, you know, the market got a lot of notice after that because investors, including a lot of our own, were, were remarking on how, one, that had very good liquidity, um, and two, it did demonstrate non-correlation to the marketplace. Uh, so a lot of people were saying it's like, you know, a lot of investors were complaining that they had paid away a lot of money for non-correlated assets in many respects. So they were, they were uh, uh, taking a lower return for, you know, just because of it's, it's, uh, the attractiveness of being uncorrelated. But then they saw that actually they were extremely correlated uh, in a big move like, the, what, like what we saw after the global financial crisis. And, uh, and cap bonds and the like did not do that. Uh, they, they, showed, uh, they showed a lot of robustness. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's been an extreme, you know, that's, that's been an uh, extremely attractive uh, um, aspect of our marketplace. Nelson, maybe if we could turn the focus a little bit and talk to us a little bit about Fermat. Um, as you said, you're based up here, uh, an hour and a half north of Manhattan. Um, I've just come up on the train this morning, which I think we heard one go past. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk us a little bit about Fermat? Um, the size, what you focus on, capacity, etc. Yeah, sure. Uh, Fairmont Capital. So right now we've got uh, about six billion dollars in assets under management within the ILS space, and uh, um, um, you know we have a, a you know several different accounts. We have some commingled accounts, and we have uh, some uh, separate managed accounts. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to be heavily focused on the cap on side, as I said, which is more the liquid part. Uh, but we do do a liquid stuff uh, as well, uh, investments, and uh, um, you know that is also a fairly decent sized part of our business. Um, the uh, um, you know we tend to be we tend to our philosophy is really about following risk reward. We don't have a, a return target per se. We don't necessarily even have um, uh, risk peril uh, distributions in mind or, or strict risk limits when it comes to concentration risks and the like. Uh, we really follow risk reward and uh, um, the, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot different than a lot of other people in the marketplace on how they approach this market. Um, one, of, one of the things that I think allows us to follow risk reward is that we have a, a, uh, what we th believe is a very robust pricing model uh, for pricing risk, uh, in particular with the ILS type of risk. Um, Black Shoals doesn't really work very well, things like that. 
a lot of people just use kind of copper bowls, but we've developed something that we think works really well for that. And this is a proprietary um, system it's, methodology? Yeah, it's a proprietary methodology, and it's, yeah, it's and served and Black us very Charles well. Is, Black Charles is an option pricing yes. uh, mechanism, and you've developed your own intellectual property to, to, to price these securities. Yes, yes, and, and trading so that's systems the, around that. That's the secret source. Uh, it's, it's, it definitely helps, you know, but uh, I, I think, you know, experience in the marketplace helps a lot too. Uh, we're not black box and we overlay our, our, you know, our knowledge and everything across that. And, uh, you know, we, we've assembled a very good team um, that, uh, um, you know, really covers all aspects of the market uh, that we think are important. Uh, modeling is extremely important um, and underwriting and then uh, um, legal and uh, uh, structuring and things like that are a very big part of our market as so well. So there's a human overlay of judgment over what your models and uh, algorithms would be suggesting yes, in terms definitely, of pricing. Definitely. And how is FEMAT placed within the insurance link, security, catastrophe bond market? How, how is it positioned against other players in the market? Uh, you know, I, I think, I believe that we're the, the largest investor within the cap bonds itself. Uh, we're not the largest when it comes to all ILS, so collateralized reinsurance and the like. Um, but, uh, our, you know, our, our aim has never been to be the largest. Um, you know, we, we you know, like to, to, uh, to expand when the market expands, and if the market contracts, you know, we'll contract with that. Uh, and we like to stay at, a, at basically a, a relatively nimble size uh, so that we don't, uh, we're not beholden to, to invest in every cap bond that comes out or anything like that. And typically, how do you get remunerated from uh, the people that invest with you? It's, it's, a, it's a variety of ways. It could be, you know, management fee, fee performance fee, things like that. So it's, uh, it depends on the, uh, uh, on the client, a lot of it. Okay. And from a day-to-day -day basis, what are most of the people within or the key people within the organization doing just to give you know, our clients a bit of a flavor of, of what the operations are Yeah. About? Well, so catastrophe bonds uh, in particular, as opposed to collateralized reinsurance, catastrophe bonds just trade daily on every business day. And so um, there are, you know, there's, there's you know, portfolio managers like myself uh, we have three of them at Fairmont. We're, we're constantly uh, watching the secondary market. Uh, that's number one uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, the uh, new issuance side is, tends to be very active uh, in the first half of the year and uh, the last quarter of the year. And, who, and um, who's issuing these, these bonds? Is insurers themselves? Or? Yeah, well, the, the insurance companies and reinsurers and corporates and government entities will, will hire a banker typically to do this. So, uh, and then the bankers organize the deal and then bring it to investors for, uh, uh, for sale. Um, and um, uh, so it's quite busy with, with the new deals. Each new deal that comes out is, is quite labor intensive to, to review. Uh, in terms of just all aspects, the legal aspects, the structuring, the modeling, and, and the like. And, uh, uh, but once it's issued, also, a lot of the, the cap bonds, they have a lot of, uh, they can, they have updates to them. They can change over the course of time. Uh, they, they have different reset levels. Uh, a lot of them have aggregate loss trigger bonds, and so the risk of those will change not just seasonally, but as events happen and the like. And so there's a lot of um, uh, 
a lot of remodeling of bonds constantly. Uh, so we're, we're you know, evaluating all the, the universe of catastrophe bonds um, on a real-time basis, and uh, um, you know, that, that consumes up a lot of uh, bandwidth. That's one of the things we see when we look at um, performance over time in this space in the catastrophe bonds is that you know, often there's a direct correlation between um, a, a catastrophic event, hurricane, or a season like last year, which was a big season in the US for hurricanes with, I think, Irma and some others, that there may be a loss in a month, but there's quite often a quick and meaningful rebound in the months after that. Can, can you explain why that seems to happen? Or, or, or is that generally a trend? You mean like, uh, like say, mark-to-market losses after a, uh, uh, when a catastrophe happens? Yeah, if, then... we look at the, yeah if we look at the monthly pricing... Um, yeah, it, it I mean, tends to rebound quite quickly. It's very situational. I mean, when when an event happens uh, right away, it's it's not you can't put a, a, a quick number on the losses of it really uh, right away immediately, and so you'll you'll find conservatism typically built into the marks um, from what people understand the event to to uh, to be. And so you know, it's it's not unusual. It's, it won't always be the case. Sometimes the event could turn out to be a larger event than people expect, uh, in which case you might see, see prices go down you know, even further yes. after an event. Uh, but but the, the typical you know, uh, uh, scenario happens where an event happens, there's a little conservatism built in the marks, and so you'll see a lot of mark-to-market losses early on, uh, and those will recover after, over time as the market kind of stabilizes and people understand the real losses that are, that are happening. Um, but uh, and that's what happened after Hurricane Irma and, and, and uh, Harvey Maria, Harvey Irma, then Maria, actually. Uh, they call it HIM. Uh, so those Alphabet losses. Alphabetical order, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that happened, and then uh, uh, you, saw, you saw the marks on bonds take a big hit. Um, originally, those, a lot of those uh, storms were you know, thought to, people thought they were going to cause a lot larger losses. Uh, than uh, uh, than they actually did, and so that's why you saw some of the rebound in the marks there. Uh, but you know, it's, that won't always be the case. So, does part of your analysis include modeling for weather? Uh, not modeling for weather per se, like temperature and rainfall and things like that. Uh, we also aren't into uh, like hurricane prediction and forecasting necessarily. Uh, not long-term forecasts or medium-term forecasts. Mm -hmm. um, the, the science behind that, I think, is still quite uh, uh, tenable, and uh, the, um, uh, uh, it's, it tends to also not be very great at, at, for landfalling hurricanes, predicting mm -hmm. on a medium to long-term forecast. Uh, and it's really the, the landfalling hurricanes that we're more concerned about, of course. Yes. Um, and, uh, but uh, um, you know, we do monitor all those things. Um, people often ask about global warming and oh, the yeah, like. That's going to be my next yeah, question. Which uh, you know, the models do take that into account. Um, they tend to be you know fairly long-term effects on something like that as well. Uh, but they are you know relatively taken into effect, um, and uh, um, so that's you know. And the bonds themselves tend to be shorter dated uh, in terms of you know uh, uh, that type of risk. Well, global warming can be multi-decadal, but the bonds themselves will be like you know, 
three to five years of maturity at, at issuance. And so uh, there's, there's abilities for them to kind of reset over time as the models get updated. Uh, and, and what's the current environment for for Matt and these insurance links, insurance link security catastrophe bonds look like at the moment, kind of uh, position and outlook. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the the market looks like it's it's poised to to see a decent amount of growth. Um, Two thousand seventeen, you know, in the end, is is not causing a lot of major impacts on the pricing. Um, so it had short term pricing impacts, but because I think the uh, the events weren't as large as people had feared they would be. Uh, the pricing impacts haven't been as as high, um, but uh, but I think it's it's just caused more interest in uh, um, um, seedants issuing cap bonds and the like, and so I think the the market is is looking to to it's actually really a continuation, but a continuation of nice growth in the marketplace. Terrific, Nelson. Look, before we conclude, I think we were talking a little bit just before we got started here, but. I'm fascinated with why there are so many top-class or world-class um, money managers in this this little area north of <laughs> um, Manhattan, in, in Connecticut particularly. Um, why, why is it so? Why, why are there so many, I guess, hedge fund or world-class money managers in the Connecticut area, such as yourselves? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's really just uh, it's it's just an alternative uh, place to to New York. So if you, you know, it's got a very nice school system and it's, it's a, a great place to raise a family. Um, uh, you know, you get sports activities and the like that are a little bit more difficult to do in New York City. It's, 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 it's just a different lifestyle. So I think some of it's just an artifact of, you know, uh, you get a concentration and it just sort of builds on itself, but uh, uh, happen to be in Connecticut. Yeah, but it certainly is. Nelson, thank you very much for that. Really appreciate your time and thanks for joining us inside sure. the rope. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.